From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello, and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Steve Reddish, in for Kim Lewis this week. Joining me today is VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson. Hello, Cindy and Catherine. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having us. Okay, here are the issues we'll cover today. More demonstrations in China protesting the country's zero COVID policy that has large swaths of the population under lockdown and quarantine. China promises a crackdown on what it calls hostile forces, but in the last day or so, it seems that China may be easing off on its zero COVID policy. In the U.S., Republicans are counting the days until they take over the House of Representatives, while Democrats are running out of time to get Joe Biden's agenda, including aid to Ukraine, through Congress before they have to give up control. NATO's chiefs suggest Ukraine's membership is inevitable as the alliance searches for ways to get Ukrainians through the winter amid extensive damage to electric and water infrastructure by Russia's missile strikes. And sports meets world politics on the football pitch in Qatar. Um, The U.S. versus Iran match had more to it than met the eye, and the players left everything on the pitch. Let's get started with China and its zero COVID policy. Protests against the policy began about a week ago after 10 people died in an apartment fire in the western province of Xinjiang. People there apparently believe the lockdown delayed firefighters from getting to the blaze in time. Protests against the zero COVID policy has spread to about a dozen cities in China, with many protesters displaying a blank sheet of white paper. As one protester told Reuters, the white paper represents everything we want to say, but cannot say. Many of the protests were directed at leader Xi Jinping, calling for him to resign. On Wednesday, though, a bit of a crack appeared in China's policy as the vice premier in charge of COVID suggested changes in the zero COVID policy is underway. So, Cindy, these protests in China are rather remarkable, unseen at this kind of level since Tiananmen Square in 1989. What's been the reaction both of the State Department and throughout the rest of the world? Right, Steve. Well, they have been remarkable. And as you say, we've seen uh, some brutal crackdowns by police. And we know that uh, uh, China uh, is a police state with incredible surveillance and that they have uh, been calling uh, some protesters afterwards on their cell phones and and asking them to you know to no longer uh, protest and uh, the reaction here from the U.S. from the from the State Department and the White House has been rather cautious. Uh, we have had uh, the State Department and the White House uh, saying that the U.S. Uh, stands uh, with the protesters and that everyone should have the right to uh, to go out and express their opinion to uh, take to the street. But uh, it has been rather, you know, understated. And uh, some Republicans have even criticized Secretary of State Antony Blinken and President Biden for uh, not being, you know, more forceful. But um, 
some experts say that the, the, the U.S. response is deliberately cautious because the standard Chinese response whenever there's any kind of domestic protest is to blame the U.S. and say that the U.S. is, is organizing it and funding it and encouraging it. And so if the U.S. were really uh, very, very uh, out in front uh, of uh, supporting the protest, then it would only fuel those kind of claims from China. Yeah, that's right, Cindy. You know, you mentioned that Republican response, and they have been very forceful in coming out and saying that they're in support of these protests, that everyone has a right to free speech. But again, we've also heard accusations that the U.S. is meddling in China, conspiracy theories that have been unproven so far. And, you know, the U.S. always needs to be very mindful of this in terms of overseas protests. We've also seen it in Iran that they cannot be accused of meddling in this. President Biden cannot come out too forcefully in terms of saying what he wants to see happen in China. But what's been really striking for me is to see how the younger generation in China is so technologically savvy and able to use VPNs and all sorts of you know apps that delete data on the phone instantly in case they're captured by police. They're really able to use these new technologies to work around the police and the state to organize protests. And I think that that's a really interesting part of these protests is to see how everybody has been able to use those organizing elements to really come together for the first time. You hear from a lot of protesters, younger ones, saying they thought that they were alone, they thought that they wouldn't, didn't have anybody else who shared their concerns, and now they're discovering through these apps, through this organizing, that they all, they do have some support. So interesting to see that develop. One interesting aspect of this whole story is, you know, with the World Cup on television, um, there are shots of the crowd throughout wearing no masks and reports out of China say that the Chinese are, um, are, are censoring the crowd shots from the World Cup broadcast feed uh, to kind of cut out the maskless crowds out there. Um, just a, a, another sign of, of the, the lengths China will go to to, um, to, to keep their people um, understanding what the government is saying is right rather than believing out any outside forces. Right. I think, Steve, uh, you're pointing down to the, the, the central issue here is uh, China's zero COVID policy. It is the uh, world's only major economy with this policy. And as uh, our um, listeners probably know, that local authorities will clamp down on the smallest, smallest outbreak of COVID with mass testing, quarantine, and SNAP lockdowns. And it has just hurt millions of people and hurt the economy. And uh, China, as we know, um, has its own vaccines, which are not as effective as vaccines in the West. And they've also not been very uh, successful in um, getting uh, elderly um, vaccinated. I mean, this, this, Policy of lockdowns has some advantages and disadvantages. I mean, according to their statistics, they the number of deaths in such a large, highly populated country has only been in the thousands, whereas the U.S. has has lost more than a million people to COVID. But it 
has had these costs of, of, of keeping people locked down and taking their freedom away. And as, as you mentioned, Steve, it looks like Chinese, uh, at least some Chinese public health officials are acknowledging that these uh, lockdowns can trigger anxiety and that they need to be lifted quickly. So we may be seeing some movement there. Right. And as you mentioned, Cindy, that rate of vaccination among the elderly in China is, is discouraging for some for the authorities there. And when they talk about rolling mm-hmm. back some of these restrictions, one of the things the government is trying to do is target, get a drive to get more of the elderly vaccinated so that they can have a little bit more immunity. Part of the problem with these lockdowns is that there hasn't been any, any opportunity for the Chinese people to develop natural immunity by mixing. So here in the United States and in other countries, you have a mix of immunity from the vaccines and natural immunity because we've been out in public a lot more than the Chinese people have. So they're really facing problems on multiple fronts and and getting that vaccination rate up among the elderly may help ease things a little bit. On to U.S. politics now, and with Republicans poised to take control of the U.S. House of Representatives on January 3rd, Democrats have about a month of full control of Congress to try and pass the rest of its agenda in what's called a lame duck session. Among the issues, funding the government, avoiding a national railroad strike, and addressing the legal loopholes that ex-President Donald Trump tried to exploit Uh, back on January 6th, 2021. Already, some landmark legislation has been passed regarding same-sex marriage. Catherine, let's start there. Can you explain that legislation and where Congress is headed? Absolutely. So December is always a busy month up on Capitol Hill, and it's never more so than in that lame duck session, as you mentioned. Before a new Congress comes in in January, we have a very big to-do list But we did strike one key item off recently, and that's the Respect for Marriage Act, as you mentioned, that provides federal protections for same-sex couples and interracial couples. And that legislation really came out of concerns after the Dobbs decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, which, of course, overturned the Roe versus Wade, almost 50-year-old protection for a federal right to abortion, sent that back to the states. And there were some concerns in the conservative court's opinion that this could also also lead to an overturn of the protections for same-sex and interracial marriage. And in, you know, one of those unusual situations, there was actually a very quick movement relatively on Capitol Hill to get that legislation together. Democrats were able to bring on ultimately 12 Senate Republicans to pass that legislation along with them. And so this is this is actually a, a pretty big moment. We had legislation earlier that was overturning those rights, and this now overturns that. So really a, a really landmark moment, but that doesn't mean that our work is done up on Capitol Hill. As you mentioned, we also have a government budget to pass. That is still in negotiating terms. There's about two weeks left on government funding as we're speaking. A lot of the negotiations will hinge on how much Ukraine funding goes into that final legislation. As we know, House Republicans who are coming into power 
in January have expressed some concerns about providing a, quote, blank check to Ukraine for fighting the war against Russia. So there's a lot of concern among Democrats that they need to get that funding in there now while they are still in power in this lame duck session, get Ukraine funded through at least the middle of next summer, and, you know, also raise up some of the domestic spending levels, which Republicans are saying, look, we already passed the Inflation Reduction Act earlier this year. That raised domestic spending levels. You can't have any more in this year. A lot of negotiating points to work out and not a lot of time left to work them out. There's, there's also, aside from Congress, we have the issue of the ex-president, Donald Trump, now a 2024 presidential candidate. He's under fire from Democrats and now some Republicans for hosting the musician Yee, also known as Kanye West, and white supremacist Nick Fuentes for dinner at his Mar-a-Lago resort. Yee's recent, recent tirades against Jews have been condemned across the board. How is this impacting the body politic here in the U.S. and how it's seen outside the U.S.? Well, we saw a mixed reaction on Capitol Hill. We saw Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell come out and condemn the meeting in pretty strong terms. He said that anybody who met with an anti, uh, a white supremacist, anti-Semite, would never be elected president. So pretty strong words from Mitch McConnell. Kevin McCarthy, who is poised to become the Speaker of the House in January, if he can collect enough Republican votes, came out and said in lesser terms that he condemned any of those viewpoints, but really didn't come out and mention Trump by name. We know that he is, you know, he has been close to Trump in the past. So you're seeing a little bit of a mixed reaction, people saying that, you know, this is unfortunate that Trump didn't know that Fuentes was, held these beliefs, that he was kind of tricked into it by the musician Yi. So... You know, another another controversy is always with the former president. Right. And there are others who say that uh, former President Trump uh, probably knew very well who Nick Fuentes was. And uh, but uh, that's sort of the whole thing kind of um, also draws attention to um, the election bill, which Democrats are seeking to uh, pass in, in their few remaining weeks. And uh, that bill would try to avoid future uh, crises like we had on, on January 6, 2021, when we had a, a violent mob trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power in the United States. And uh, that would uh, clarify that election results fall under the authority of a state governor and not any just uh, rogue lawmakers in, in states across the country and would make it harder for any one member of Congress to delay certification of the uh, state's results, uh, you know, certifying who the president of the United States is. So I think Democrats are very, very hopeful that they can get that passed. Time now for a break. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington, D.C. You can download the program free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com slash issues. And while you're there, you can check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit our, us on Facebook. Leave a comment or two. Like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. 
Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson. Now on to Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said, quote, Russia does not have a veto when it comes to future membership for Ukraine. His words opened a meeting of NATO foreign ministers in Bucharest looking for ways to support Ukraine through the winter as Russian airstrikes take a toll on Ukraine's electric grid and water delivery system. So, Cindy, where do things stand as far as NATO and America and NATO and America's support for Ukraine? Uh, right, Steve. Well, at this uh, NATO um, foreign ministers meeting in, in Romania, uh, it became very clear that NATO uh, unity continues on Ukraine. Uh, there is sustained strong support by all the members. I think Russian President Putin was hoping that, you know, with winter approaching and with uh, energy supplies tight and expensive in much of Europe, that some of the unity might start to crack. But that has not happened. And uh, as you mentioned, NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg uh, did reaffirm Ukraine's right to choose its own path for the future. But as far as NATO membership, uh, he said, you know, right now, NATO is more forced on providing Ukraine with what it needs to survive the winter. And they are facing with uh, snow on the ground in places and below freezing temperatures in many parts of the country. They are facing some of the most barbaric conditions that uh, anybody in, in Europe has faced in, in decades and a long time. And the U.S. is is trying to help and other members of NATO uh, about 40% of Ukraine's energy sector has been damaged or destroyed uh, by the Russians. And the U.S. is uh, providing um, assistance for the electricity grid and also providing um, uh, uh, generators to try to uh, keep people alive during the winter. But the problem is, and, and, and Ukraine's uh, foreign minister, Kuleba, highlighted this, you know, NATO and the U.S. are providing money. Ukraine repairs the infrastructure and Russia bombs it again. So it's kind of a vicious cycle that we have going on. And that's why it's so important to be monitoring what's happening on Capitol Hill in terms of continued Ukraine funding. There's anxiety that the U.S. could be turning off that spigot relatively soon. There's a sense on Capitol Hill that a deal can eventually be worked out about that Ukraine funding. Republicans have expressed concerns that there isn't sufficient oversight and that if some sort of mechanism could be set up, then that would be a that could be a possible avenue for a deal to be worked out. Senate Republicans have already signaled some willingness to listen to that proposal. I I think that you may not see a complete turnoff of funding, but you will see some some increased controls and maybe a, a lesser amount. Before we go, I want to touch on the World Cup in Qatar. It was win and you're in for the Iranians only needed to tie to advance, but the U.S. needed to win. It was a dramatic game. Um, any thoughts on the uh, one nil win by the U.S.? Well, uh, Steve, I thought it was it was a it was a great match. And, I, you know, I uh, think the players were really uh, not focused on the politics. They were focused on, you know, 
on uh, staying in and as you said and 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 moving on and 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 trying to uh, you know to be a competitor in the cup and I was very moved by scenes afterwards where you know Iranian players obviously uh, some of them very distraught and upset and and crying and you had some of the U.S players, uh, including Josh Sargent and others, you know, putting their arms around them and, and comforting them. And, and those were some some great, great photos and great scenes and, uh, you know, of, of good sportsmanship. And, um, you know, it was a highly, uh, highly watched match because, you know, even there were some differences between the Iranian fans, because as we know, um, uh, Iran has seen protests after the death and police custody of Masa Amini, and you had some Iranian fans who are pro of the government and some fans who, you know, are um, in favor of, of women's rights and, and want to see changes with the government. So uh, we, we watched that uh, playing out uh, at the match. That's right. And, you know, very moving scenes of some of the Iranian players choosing not to sing their national anthem in support of those protesters for women's rights. And I know that there was some speculation that if Iran stayed in the World Cup matches, that that would continue to focus attention on those protests. And of course, with the U.S. win, that means that Iran is knocked out of the running for that. And you know, some of the there will certainly be lesser attention going forward on some of these issues. So it was certainly a very, very dramatic match with some unusually high stakes. Let's move on to uh, our closing segment. What is weighing on your mind this week? Catherine, you go first. Well, what's weighing on my mind this week is that there's a new generation on Capitol Hill. We have heard for the past couple of years from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, that at a certain point, she would step back. She would let a new generation of Democrats get in the running for leadership. We know, of course, that Democrats won't hold the majority in the new Congress next year, but it is still very important to hold those leadership elections. They will be going up against Republicans, strategizing, and we got a whole new leadership team this week, including the first African-American Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries. So that was a very exciting moment in the U.S. Congress this week. And even though Pelosi is stepping down, she is remaining in Congress and serving as a representative. She'll kind of be that elder statesperson voice that can guide this younger generation. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how all of that plays out, to have some of these fresh voices and fresh faces while Pelosi remains there as a guiding force. You know, I've been up on Capitol Hill for seven years. My colleague Cindy covered Congress before I did. And you know, Pelosi has been a, a staple there. She has been there for decades and has been the leading voice among the Democrats. So this is really a new generation and a, a significant change. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Thanks. Yes. Changing of the guard on Capitol Hill. Cindy, what is weighing on your mind this week? 
Well, that's right. And Catherine generously, you know, gave me maybe a twofer that I, you know, I am thinking about uh, Speaker Pelosi and love her or hate her politics. She is one of the most powerful women in American politics, in American history. And she was, I think, one reason why she was so vilified by some Republicans is that she was so good at her job. She was so effective. She was the best vote counter that I've ever seen. Uh, but my, what I was actually going to say is on my mind has just been the um, has been the World Cup, and I've enjoyed watching it and just seeing these people from talented athletes from all over the world uh, competing, playing fair, you know, when, accepting their losses, and then at times, you know, consoling each other. And it just sort of may sound cliche, but it just sort of brought back to me that, you know, on any given day, we can all be winners or losers and we shouldn't gloat when we're winning. And it's and it's good to, uh, you know, console others when they're losing. And I've enjoyed watching that sportsmanship. That's going to do it for today for this edition of Issues in the News. My thanks to VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Congressional Correspondent Katherine Gibson. I'm Steve Reddish. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of Issues in the News. Mm-hmm.